0: I wanna begin by asking you a question. How would you describe your impression of the church? Doesn't need to be this church necessarily, but in general, what word describes how you feel about the Christian church overall? Are you cynical? Maybe you've had experiences that have disillusioned you and made you feel like all Christians are hypocrites. Are you prideful? Maybe you feel like your particular church or denomination you're a part of is the best kind of Christianity there is. Other churches don't put the right emphasis on the right issues. Are you apathetic? Maybe you aren't that involved or committed to what's happening at your church. Perhaps maybe there are some who are positive about church. Maybe you've seen a local church functioning well Maybe you've even been the beneficiary of the church getting it right sometime when it mattered, caring for people, extending herself in self giving love. In our current series, John on Jesus, we've been making our way through the second half of John's biography of Jesus in the New Testament. The last several weeks, we've been looking at Jesus' farewell speech to his friends from John chapters 14 to 17. Immediately, After this, as we'll see next week, Jesus will be arrested by guards, tried, and put on a cross. The chapter we're looking at today is the culmination of these final words. But in this chapter, Jesus isn't talking to his friends and followers. Instead, he's talking with God, he's praying. And as his followers overhear this conversation, they, and by extension we, get a glimpse not only of the intimate relationship Jesus had with the Father, but also of what matters most to him. This is Jesus' last will and testament, so to speak. What's more, this is one of a handful of times in the Bible when we get to hear the content of Jesus' prayer to the Father. The Bible references Jesus praying quite frequently, but we only hear what he's actually praying on a few occasions. And this chapter is by far the longest prayer we have recorded of Jesus. So by nature of its context and content, these words tell us what matters to Jesus. And it turns out what matters most to him is that God be glorified. And it turns out that God being glorified is gonna happen through the church. First through those initial followers and then gradually through thousands of years through followers of Jesus today. Whatever our view of church is, I think as we listen to Jesus pray, we will all find ways in which our own view of church needs some adjusting. For if indeed Jesus is the head of the church as we claim, we should probably take our cues from him about just what the church is. With that in mind, let's turn to the prayer itself in John chapter 17. For the sake of time, I'm not gonna read all 26 verses. I'm just gonna summarize and highlight a few. But I wanna encourage you to read this chapter in its entirety. You may even wanna use Jesus' prayer as your prayer before the end of the day. The prayer can be divided up into three sections, Jesus praying for himself in verses one to five, Jesus praying for the 12 in verses six to 19, and Jesus praying for all future disciples in verses 20 to 26. But Jesus prays two recurring themes throughout the prayer regardless of who he's praying for. Those two themes address both how we relate to people externally, people outside our community, And also how we relate to people internally within the church itself. We're going to look at each of these in turn today. First, externally. What is the relationship the church is to have with the world? The phrase world or cosmos occurs 79 times in the book of John. 38 times in chapters 14 to 17, Jesus' farewell discourse. And half of those are in this prayer alone. So this is a dominant theme, and that makes sense. Jesus is leaving, his disciples are staying. How are they to be his people here? And the world here is not referring to a geographic location on the map. It means people who are not yet following Jesus. They may be indifferent, they may be hostile, but they don't yet claim Jesus as Lord. So the first thing Jesus addresses in his prayer is how are we to relate to those who do not claim to follow Jesus? Now, Christians throughout the ages have wrestled with this question. Some have answered it by saying, we need to be out of the world, against the world that we should be very careful about engaging with culture. In fact, culture is inherently bad and we're better off withdrawing and surrounding ourselves only with people who agree with our Christian views. They may even cite the passage we looked at last week, John 15:19, as the rationale for their perspective. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Other Christians, perhaps reacting to this stance, may go the other extreme, where they emphasize being in the world. we got to be able to relate where people are, speak their language, address their concerns, maybe even lobby for their agendas. And while I applaud the effort to be relevant and accommodate to culture, sometimes these Christians become so identical with culture, they actually lose what distinguishes them from the world in the first place most Christians would instead agree that our calling lies somewhere in between these two extremes. What is sometimes referred to as in the world, but not of it. And that phrase actually comes from this chapter. Verses 14 to 16. I have given them, the disciples, your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Do you see that? Jesus is praying, don't take them out, but they aren't of it either. So if you're not out, you're in. So in the world, but not of it. Meaning we're not to avoid culture completely. We're not to cloister away in some holy huddle removed from the influences around us but we're also not to become so enmeshed with culture that we fall into syncretism where we're so accommodated in culture there's nothing distinctive about us anymore in other places the bible talks about if the salt loses its saltiness we're to remain sprinkled throughout various arenas of the world without allowing our culture's values and priorities to dictate how we live Our allegiance is to Jesus first and foremost, despite any other identity we may claim. And I think this is a helpful phrase as we think about our relationship with those who would not identify as Christians. It's certainly been helpful to me over the years. What kinds of movies do we watch or books do we read or music do we listen to? Do we participate in sporting events that conflict with church activities? Do we ever resist the influence of others around us? And if so, when? And just how might we do that? But while those questions are interesting and the phrase in the world but not of it can be a helpful starting place for Christians about how we are to engage the world around us, I don't think it sufficiently captures Jesus' heart here as revealed in his prayer. Jesus is not just praying that we have wisdom in discerning where to accommodate and where to be distinctive. Jesus isn't just praying for his church to be in the world not of it. He's praying for his church to be for the world. Not against, not in, not even in but not of, but for. Let me show you what I mean. The reality is Jesus won't be around anymore because of his death and subsequent resurrection and ascension to the Father. In John 17:11, Jesus tells God, the father, I will remain in the world no longer, but they, the disciples are still in the world and I'm coming to you. He's leaving. The disciples are staying. And as a result, they are now Jesus representatives on earth. He's passing the baton. He's initiating the succession plan. And Jesus was invested in this mission. He defends just how faithful he was to this mission in verses six to 10. You can look at that. I've revealed you to those whom you gave me. I gave them the words you gave me. I protected them and kept them safe. And now he doesn't want all his hard work to be undone. He wants it to continue in the hands of those he is entrusting to finish the work. And what is that work? Verse 17 As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Verse 21, may they be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Verse 22, 23, may they be brought to complete unity so that the world will know you sent me and have loved them. Jesus had a very clear mission from God. John tells us in the prologue of his book in John chapter 1 verse 18, no one has ever seen God. But the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. Jesus' entire mission was to reveal God. In Jesus, God's full character is on display. If we want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus, how he lived, taught, treated others and most significantly, how we poured out His life as a sacrifice for us so that we might know God, both now and in eternity. So really, Jesus' mission of revealing God's character means revealing God's love. First John 4:16, God is love. This world Jesus references in John chapters 14 to 17 is not something inherently bad or something to be feared. Quite the contrary. This world John references is precisely where Jesus' affections lie. This is the world God made, God loves, and into which he sent his son. John says it like this in John chapter three, verse 16. For God so loved the world That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And now Jesus, fulfilling this mission, about to go to the cross, offering his life as the culmination of his love for the world, pleads with the Father that his successors will be effective in continuing this work. And for that to happen, they must show his love. If Jesus' followers are to carry out his mission in the world, we must not only be in the world, but not of it. We must be for it. We must love it. We must, as our purpose statement aspires, love God, love others. And our God is not a grasping God. He is a giving, generous God. Philippians 2, 6-8 describes Jesus' self-giving love this way. Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. I like other versions that say, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the kind of love we're to have for the world. That's what we have been sent into the world to do. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that's what your mission is, to extend the self-giving love of God to those who do not yet know it so that they too may come to believe in Jesus and by believing have life in his name. And this is not the job description of just pastors. We are all sent into the world to love this way and to work for the common good wherever you are. We can do this in our jobs and volunteer roles. When as a teacher, you help a student achieve grade level in their reading ability, you are obeying Jesus call to live for the sake of the world. When you in the medical community take the time to listen to a patient and help bring clarity to what has been disrupting their body and as a consequence then, their relationships, you are obeying Jesus' calling to live for the sake of the world. When as a volunteer, you sacrifice hours behind the scenes to give food or tutoring or coaching squirrely kids or encouragement to someone else who may not ever thank you, You are obeying Jesus' calling to live for the sake of the world, and on and on. Beyond vocation, we can do this in our everyday relationships. Let me give you one example. Several weeks ago, I was at a neighborhood gathering with numerous families, not from City Church. The conversation turned to jobs, and one woman, upon learning I was a pastor at City Church, said, oh, I know City Church. Doesn't so-and-so go there? We'll call her Cheryl. Yes, I responded. Cheryl attends our church, quietly hoping the person had a favorable opinion of Cheryl. Oh, she responded in an elated tone. I just love Cheryl. She is kind and authentic and funny and generous and everything that is good about a person. Literally, those were her words. And then she proceeded to tell me the story of how she'd had a health crisis and how Cheryl had stepped in, caring for her and her family in exactly the way she needed. And she ended our conversation by saying essentially, yeah, I don't know if I identify with the values of your church, but Cheryl, she's wonderful. Do you see the power of that? I don't know yet if I buy into your Jesus, but if you're any indication of what he's like, of his love and his goodness, I'm open. Friends, that is the power of being the church for the world. That's what Jesus prays we would be. So for those of us who follow Jesus here, let me ask each one of us, myself included, how am I living for the sake of the world? How am I showing love to those outside the church in self-giving, sacrificial ways? And we could take stock of different spheres of our lives, our workplaces, our families, our hobbies, our volunteer capacities. What if instead of being known for our beliefs, we were known for our love? And what would it take for that to happen? But Jesus isn't just praying for a church that is only for the world. He's praying for a church that is for the world with one another. This love for others isn't just meant to extend to others outside the church. So the second thing we want to look at is internal. What is the relationship the church is to have with itself, with those who are followers of Jesus? And the answer is unity. Verse 11, Father, protect them so they may be one as we are one. Verse 20, may all of them be one, Father, Verse 22, 23, may they be one as we are one so that they may be brought to complete unity. It's easy to see why this unity in the church matters to Jesus. Verse 21, may they be one so that the world may believe you've sent me. Verse 22, brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and loved them. You see, when Christians come together and embody God's love, setting aside personal preferences or differences, and uniting around a common purpose or mission, that's noticeable. In fact, Jesus says, that's good PR for God. That's powerful advertising. That's compelling evidence. Why? I don't think I need to describe just how much division and disunity there is in our world today. From our own families to our federal government, unity, it seems, is a premium. Who can bring peace or reconciliation to our homes, schools, cities, nation, world even? See, at the root of every government, every city, every family, every church, lies human beings. And each one of us is infected with the disease of pride and selfishness. That doesn't mean we aren't loved by God. It just means we're broken. And Jesus, knowing how frail, how weak, how vulnerable, how prideful we can all be, prays that God would grant us this ability to live and act in ways beyond ourselves for the sake of others so that God might be glorified. Now, unity can be so misunderstood. So let me say just a few brief words about what it isn't. For starters, Jesus is not talking about merging denominational institutions when he prays for unity. It is not as if we Christians just all need to get along and agree on one way to do church. The New Testament intentionally steers away from offering one blueprint on how to do church. Instead, the Bible gives us a picture of a number of different local communities in varying geographic places that become the church. In addition, Jesus' prayer for unity, this is important, is not a plea for uniformity. On the contrary, many descriptions of the church in the Bible emphasize it as a unity within diversity. That's real unity. If you read 1 Corinthians 12, you'll see this very clearly. 1 Corinthians 12, 4. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them The Apostle Paul even uses the analogy of a human body in that chapter to make a point that just as the body has many different parts, hands, feet, eyes, ears, they all work together to perform the same function. So too with us. We are not to all be the same, but we are to value one another and value our differences. Furthermore, the unity Jesus prays for does not in any way mean Christians will agree on complex moral issues or how to live out our faith in the world. Romans 14 gives us some very helpful guidelines for what Christians are to do when they disagree about how to engage with issues. For them, it was meat sacrifice to idols. For us, it's other issues. But the principles are still helpful. We're to become informed and then prayerfully come to a conviction. We're not to judge or treat with contempt those who may disagree. And we must also be willing to forego our own conviction out of love for a brother or sister who may believe differently. There's a lot more to it than that. And I encourage you to read that chapter, but suffice it to say, disagreement is not necessarily an indication that we have failed at unity. Instead, the unity Jesus wants to see from his followers and for which he prays is a unity of purpose and mission. It's a unity of being for the world and doing it in such a way that it is winsome, compelling, loving, civil, respectful, even with those who, perhaps especially with those who may disagree with us. So maybe it's worth asking ourselves, how are we contributing to the unity of Jesus' church? And we could think about this on a macro level. How do we think about other Christian denominations, Catholic or Protestant? Are we open to working across denominational lines to see the name of Jesus lifted up? And we could think about this on a more micro level. Churches here in Minneapolis. How do we think and speak about other churches that seek to lift up Jesus? Because it's not a competition. We're all on the same team. It's fine to be grateful for whatever particular church body you call home, and I hope you have one that you feel at home in, but there's no place for superiority. If the church is Christ's bride, as the Bible tells us, then we had better be careful what we say about Jesus' fiance. And we can think about this on a personal level too. If City Church is your home, then how are we playing our part? Lending our gifts, our energies to contribute to the mission of God by revealing His love for the world. Is there anything we're doing that does not contribute to unity? City Church, we exist for the sake of those who are not yet here. It's not enough for us to be in the world but not of it. We must be for it, and we must do that with one another. United, not always in our convictions or opinions or strengths or personalities, but rather united in common purpose. Lifting up Jesus Christ so that people might come to believe Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing they might have life in his name. This is what Jesus longs for. This is what Jesus prays for. And by God's grace, this can be our reality. For if Jesus himself is praying for us, doesn't it seem like a good chance of being realized? For as he tells his disciples earlier in John 10, 16, I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them in also. They too will listen to my voice and they shall be one flock and one shepherd. Let's pray. Oh, God, what a privilege to be able to listen into this prayer of your son, Jesus. May it be so. May we be city church. May we be a church for the world, for the sake of the world. People would know your love through our hands and feet, our jobs, our relationships, our time, our money, everything. And may we be one. United, not in personality or the things that don't matter, but united in purpose. Only you can do this work, God. Only you can do it. And we are so far from it. We plead with you now. Make us more into your people that we could be your church for the world with one another. For Jesus' sake and for your glory. Amen.